The Live Exchange Conference is your chance to find out what's happening in the livestock export industry with a program that features thought-provoking and informative speakers. Open to all members of the supply chain, you can network with around 400 delegates from across the country, with several social events and a variety of trade exhibits. Live Exchange is being held on the 9th and 10th of November 2022. Visit liveexchange.com.au to get your tickets. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Picture this. A stockman riding a horse behind a mob of 1,000 Brahmin cattle in the iconic Kimberley region of Western Australia. You're probably picturing a young man in his early 20s, footloose and fancy-free, living one heck of an adventure. The first time Dean Morn drove 2,000 kilometres to the Kimberley to work on a cattle station, he was 45 years old, with a wife, three children, a mortgage, and working full-time in the dairy industry. In this episode, Dean shares the story of how his dream to be a ringer on a cattle station took almost 30 years to become a reality and how you just never know where life will take you. Dean Warren, welcome to the Central Station <laughs> Podcast. Well, look, it's it's a pleasure to be here. And I must admit, when um, when I first heard you started starting to do this, I never, ever thought that you'd want to be speaking to me. So so it is a pleasure to be here with you. I um, I, I realised on the way down here, you're not actually the first Morn to be on the podcast. Mm. I think you are the first... Uh, no, we have our first father-daughter duo. I'm trying to run back through everybody else's that, that has been on the podcast, but I think it is because your daughter, Mariah, was episode 21. She was, Very actually. early on in the piece. She was. Yeah, so, I was very, I was very proud of her, um, her, her episode. In fact, I actually learned a lot about her, really. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, often parents don't know everything about, about their young adult children. And it was actually, you did a great job. Did you follow her recommendation to go and watch the Taylor Swift documentary? <laughs> no. That, I, that was her recommendation <laughs> for everyone. No. No, I didn't. But um, there was a couple of little sayings that that she had there that um, made me extremely proud of her. I mean, I've always been proud of her. And if anything, I mean, you know the the song that John Williamson sell, uh, sings called "Sidey." Um, in some ways, Mariah is my sidey, and um, um, yeah, I was, I was very very proud of that um, interview. That is the sweetest thing ever. And yeah, Mariah's is a great episode for anybody new to the podcast. Um, Pop back episode 21, definitely worth a listen. So speaking of children, one of my favourite ways to start off an episode is to ask people what they were like as a child. So we know that your children oh, were boy. great and well behaved, but what about you, Dean? Oh, that's, that's a long time, time ago now. I mean, that's sort of that's six, 60 odd years ago, I guess. But, um, look, I guess as a child, I was the eldest of five growing up on a dairy farm and I, and, um, mum and dad, 
they were just starting out, never had any money. And I think from a pretty early stage, very early stage, I was given or took on the responsibility or was told to take on responsibility of helping out. So I think as, as, um, as soon as my legs could, could push the clutch down on the old grey Fergie, um, I was driving the tractor while dad chucked out the hay and I was feeding calves and hosing the yard down. And so I probably took on a, a maybe, maybe my life as a child was a little bit serious. I, I was sort of forced to grow up a little bit. Um, um, I was, um, weekend milker and, and, um, um, during, I think I was 16, 17 or one of my final years at school. Dad had, um, had a major accident with polycross and was off work for six months. And so I was actually finishing school and milking cows and running the farm with, with somebody as well. So I suppose in some ways, I mean, look, I had a great childhood. I loved it. Um, I loved my horses. I loved polycross. I loved cattle. Um, I guess I fitted school in there as well. Um, but yeah, I, I probably took on the responsibility that many, I'm sure many farm children would be well aware of. Yeah. Yeah. So that's certainly a lot for a young person to take on a lot of responsibility, especially when you think about kids these days. It seems a bit of a world away. Yeah. I think it was good for me. And I, I guess as a parent, one of the things I worried about in some regards was giving my kids that same opportunity to take on that responsibility. Sometimes, um, uh, it's, it's hard to find really good ways of teaching your kids to have responsibilities. And, uh, look, I think it helped, helped me to be the person I am. How did you go about trying to give your kids responsibility? Because they weren't raised mm. on a farm, were mm. they? No, they weren't, although we do live on the back of my parents' old dairy farm here at Harvey. But um, um, always uh, – I'll, I'll use Mariah with the horses. Um, she was responsible for everything. She was if, – if we were going to a gymkhana or a pony club or an eventing thing, she had to put the stuff on the float. She had to get the horse. It was – Dad was the driver. I mean, I could have done it all, um, but, but she was the driver. I even got her to feel the early age to learn how to trim, trim their feet. Um, cause that is a strategic <laughs> move and I approve of that. <laughs> well, when she comes home occasionally, now I've always got two horses in the paddock here. I line her up for it, but, um, but yeah, I think it's about finding, finding, I mean, we always want to do things for our kids, but sometimes it's a bit like, like the old saying, if you want to feed a man, teach him how to, how to catch a fish. Yes. And I guess it's the same with children too, that I was always looking for ways that we have a swimming pool. So one of the kids had to go and clean, clean the swimming pool. That was part of his job. And it was just, it's, it's looking for opportunities to give them responsibility, I suppose. That's really cool. Now, this is a, uh, podcast about cattle stations and we are <laughs> sitting on a dairy farm today. Uh, but it is all going to tie together, I promise. I, I, you have a very interesting, uh, journey, if you want to call it that, or story or pathway, mm. whatever word we choose, into the like the world of cattle stations. Sure, yeah. So I just want to jump straight ahead now and get you to tell me about your first time on a cattle <laughs> station. Uh just so we can we'll leap straight into it and then yep. we'll we'll go back and kind of pick it apart for our well, listeners. Well I guess it I guess I can still remember it so so clearly. I've never been to Broome. And um, hopped on a plane, and I actually knew the manager of a station up there, and I'll, I'll call it a bit of a midlife crisis. Um, I was in my mid forties, um, had just had a very close friend pass away, and questioning life, and here I am, married with three kids, and what am I doing? I, I want to go and work on a station, and I had the opportunity of going up there, and uh, um, just absolutely lovely. For, fortunately for me, um, that week the stock crew were out at camp; they're about sort of forty, fifty k's away from the homestead, so. Out with the swag, under the stars, um, getting up when the generator started at four o'clock in the morning and literally falling into bed at night, absolutely buggered because we've been going, going all day. Um, um, just loved it. I just, I, I love camping out under the stars. I love working with the cattle. Um, 
Um, I love the fact of working with young people in particular. I, I mean, it, keep in mind, I'm, I'm, I think I was 45 at the time. Um, the crew we had, I think the youngest was 18 and the oldest, the old head stockman, he was 25, so, sort of stuff. And, um, I was just blown away by the way these people, the young people, um, had got their act together. And they, they were really supportive of each other. They had a lot of fun. I mean, no, they had differences and challenges as, as a group of pe- people do, but, but they really worked together and, uh, I can't help thinking when I, when I came away thinking how much the manager of the station, well, I, I guess he took credit for the mustering and everything they did, but, I couldn't help but think, hang on, there were seven young people here who made all this happen. There's 20,000 head of cattle on that station and it was seven people, seven young people. And we can all be critical of the young ones, can't we? We can, oh, well, yeah, it was sort of fine back in my old day. But these, that's, that's what really impressed me about, about how young people could work hard and, and to make things happen. Um, just a couple of other little moments. I, I mean, I, I got my first barramundi on the end of a fishing line. Um, unfortunately, it was the one that, got away but um i had some fun doing that i got introduced to cherubin um what else did i do look i actually just um um loved the silence of the kimberleys i remember one day just driving back on my own and i I stopped i turned off the off the toyota i jumped out and just the silence the silence of a couple of cattle bellowing and uh and there's a few birds and just looking around and that was that was wonderful and I've, I've always thought that we all have, there is only one sun. There is only one sun and we have the sun here at Harvey sets every night, but it's, it's always seems different in the Kimberleys. And, um, I don't know why it's different. Um, I'm sure there's a very good reason for it, but I just love the sunsets in the Kimberleys. So they were probably some of my first memories. And I guess for a week at a time in my life when I had a lot of stuff going on, I just forgot about everything else, um, including my wife and children and all, all the responsibilities. I just sat on a horse and chased cattle and had lots of fun. I want to go back to preparing for this first trip. So you said you were 45, married with three children, working full-time down south. Did you have to pluck up the courage to ask your wife to, <laughs> to just um, go away and leave her with the kids? Uh, look, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, I've got a wife who's very perceptive and I guess she she could see that I've been – I've just gone through a, a few little things in life. I'd, I'd always wanted to go and work on a station. When I was 17, I wanted to finish school. This is back in the late 70s. I wanted to finish school, go and jump on a horse and, and, and go and work on a stock camp somewhere. And and my father, as I said, had just um, had a had an accident prior to that. And so that was, just wasn't going to happen. And, and I guess it's, it's – I think you can push things under the carpet for so long, but eventually they come out. And, and, and I guess for me, during my forties, um, having had a friend pass away from a tragic accident, um, it just made me thought, well, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? And she was extremely supportive. In fact, it was, it was her who sort of said, look, for goodness sake, go and do it. And, um, um, and, and she said to go and do it four times. And one of those times, Mariah came with me. So that was one of. One of the four times, but um, so no, I was very, very supportive from from her, and um, it just gave me the chance to, to do something in life I'd always wanted to do. And yeah, do you think you would have eventually got around to it if it hadn't been triggered by your friend passing away? That's a very good question, actually, because i I think I think we get wrapped up in we get wrapped up in life, don't we? We get wrapped up because when you get into your forties and fifties, you start thinking about retirement. You think about any of these super fun looking rights, and you, you can start to think. Think a little bit. I, I guess in many regards, since, since that friend tragically passed away, I have gone and worked on the cattle station many times. It's taken me up north now every year since then. I've done the Kokoda track. Um, I've gone and walked the Camino trail, 
Um, I've done the Gib River Challenge twice, and I was a fairly conservative person. Always found reasons why I couldn't do things because mortgage, family, kids, work, so forth. And um, and and so I, yeah, for me, it was probably a bit of a turning point with the support of my wife and family to go and do a few things that I wanted to do. Um, and maybe if he hadn't have passed away, um, I would have just thought, well, that that was life, and I wasn't going to do those things. So it was a, a fairly watershed moment in mm. your life, you know, like the, mm. after that, there's no going back. Well, I mean, I suppose two in a row. So one, you know, losing somebody close to you that, yep. that changes things. But as, as many people experience, once you go up north, <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go after that. It, you're a changed person. Absolutely. So how was it difficult? So you go up there for a week and was this in the dry season? Yeah. Yeah. It was, so it was July 2005. So yeah. it was still warm days, Lovely. but, but. Cool evenings. Yeah, you know, cold the, actually. The, I love the fire. We had the fire at night. I remember we were at a place called Paradise, and the old Paradise Homes is not not there now. It was just a. It was part of an outstate station. We had the wire beds and our swags, and and we had to light the fire at night. And so someone had to get it in the middle of the night and stoke it up because it was cold. <laughs> it was freezing cold. So um, in, in I mean, here I am thinking I'm going up in the Kimberleys. It's all going to be hot. Well, it wasn't. It was it was freezing cold. So it was just one of those experiences. Then you had to come back down south mm. to, I suppose we'll, we'll call it, I'll use the little air quotes, but real life sure. and responsibility. Sure. What was the job that you were doing at the time? Yeah, that's really interesting. At, at that time, I was with a company called Peters and Browns. I'd been the milk supply manager there for 13 or 14 years. Um, very fortunate uh, at the start of, I worked for a guy called Graham Late. Graham was the owner of, or the general manager of, of Peters and Browns and Graham, Graham had a real passion for agriculture, a real understanding and empathy for dairy farmers. And so I was sort of the conduit between the company and, and dairy farmers. And I liked that role. For a whole range of reasons, Graham had to sell out and it was bought out by a farmer cooperative from New Zealand. And they treated the business here in WA as any corporate would. Um, didn't really understand or care about the farming side of it. They were really focused on monthly performance, quarterly, quarterly performance, and of course, their annual performance, because that's what bonuses were paid on. And, uh, I can recall, I can recall seeing in a boardroom of where the managers, which I was one, we were sitting there looking at our bonus scale up on a great big spreadsheet. Um, if we achieve this sort of return, we're all going to, some guy's going to get 10 grand extra, some are going to get 20 and 30,000. And I just, I was just sitting there thinking, guys, you've got no idea what you're talking about because we had, I think at that stage had about 130 dairy farmers who all put their alarm clocks on for four o'clock in the morning to get out of bed, walk out in the dark, go and get cows in and put cups on cows and put milk in the tank such that all these guys can make their bonuses. And, um, I guess it was at that point I realized I couldn't influence these people. I tried. I couldn't influence. As much as I love the farmers, I was passionate about working um, with them and for them. Um, I'd made a decision. I was. I just couldn't hang around because the values of the company were a mile apart as far as my values were concerned in respect to treating farmers like I felt they should be treated. Um, and I said to my wife, "I'm going to be a lollipop man. I've just. I've just got to. I don't care what I do. I I'm can't wave to people. I'm going to. I'm going to do some something else." And and it was on my second trip up to the Kimberleys. Um, I decided to go again because I sort of booked this in as an annual annual event. And um, I'd actually um, I actually rang Graham Graham late. I hadn't spoken to him for two or three years, and uh, I just came out of a meeting with my general manager, who was saying he was leaving that day because his his wife had a serious illness. And he said to me, he said, look, the management's going to change in this company. It's going to, have to be a lot more influence from New Zealand, and you may not fit in here. And I think, oh my God, what's, <laughs> what does that mean? And, uh, I said to him, he said, are you saying I should go and find another job somewhere? Are you? And he said, no, no, it's, it's just going to change. 
So I rang Graham on the way home. I thought, no, blow, blow it. I'm going to hop on that plane tomorrow. I'm off to Broome. I'm going to go sit on a horse for two weeks and I'll just forget about it. And so, but I thought, well, I better ring Graham and just thank him for, for the opportunity because it was actually his station up there. And, um, and he said, oh, Dean, would you like to come and work for Milne Feeds? And he didn't know what I'd just been through. He had no idea. And I says, well, not really, Graham. <laughs> he said, why is that? And I said, Graham, I don't want to go around flogging pellets. <laughs> I had a real, I had a real thing about flogging pellets. And Graham said, well, that's good. And I said, well, why is that? And he says, cause it doesn't work. He said, you'll flog it once, but you'll never, you'll never have a chance to flog it again. And, uh, I thought, oh, okay. So he's blowing that one. And so then I said, well, well, well Graham, you, I'm going to send the company broke because the salary you're going to have to pay me to live in Perth. I said, I'm, I, there's no way you're going to get, get me to live in Perth. And he said, well, there's no cows in Perth. You better stay down at Harvey. So, um, so he blew that one. And so I hopped on a, hopped on the plane, went up the station for, for a couple of weeks and, I don't know. It was two or three. It ended up being three months, three months because I had this real um, sense of guilt um, of leaving the farmers, the dairy farmers, because I knew the company didn't care about them. They really didn't care. So I had that sense of guilt of leaving them, and it took me three months to get to that point. Can you explain to me what your role with Browns? Um, sorry, Brown, uh, mm. Peters and Browns. Peters sorry, and Browns. Yes. Which, by the way, for anybody from Western <laughs> Australia, that is as iconic as Fat Cat. You know, telling us to go to bed on TV at night or watching Telethon every October. You know, this is our chocolate milk and our iced coffee supplies, Peter's ice cream. Like, this is iconic stuff. Cabbage um, ice cream and connoisseur ice cream. Yep. Yeah. Oh, everybody loves connoisseur. But, uh, <laughs> what, what did your role actually involve? Like, I guess Graham said to me that I was the farmer's advocate within the company. So, so one, so I had a, had a whole range of things. What, one is I worked on the premise that it was hard for me to get the farmers an extra centiliter for their milk. Because we work in a commercial environment with retailers and so forth, and as much as Graham would have loved to have paid them more, there's only so much that he could afford. So my role there was, from a production point of view, was to look for ways that I could help them to increase their productivity and profitability. So how could I make them an extra centiliter without giving them a centiliter? So we talked a lot about feeding, nutrition, heifer management, um, pasture management. So so I definitely had that role. I had a role of predicting milk supply within the company because because the dairy company needs to know what's coming, um, and because they've then got to go and um, produce the products out of it and sell it. And I had a big role of educating the company people of what was involved in running a dairy farm, because a lot of them, all they saw was the milk tanker that rocked up at the factory. Um, they didn't have any understanding at all of of what it takes to manage a, a dairy farm. And I, I, I do feel sad after I left and this corporate basically took over. We probably now had 15 years, but I don't think anyone, there's no company in WA that has a real understanding of what's involved with actually producing milk. And I take my hat off to all the dairy farmers because it's a, it's a, rel- a relentless job. It's seven days a week. Um, um, when you're, I mean, I've got a friend of mine, he, he'll carve down 700 cows in six weeks. And just think about it. I said that very quickly, but you, you just think about it. Carve down 700 cows in, in six weeks. It's so he'll have 700 <laughs> calves born on his farm over the span of six, six weeks. weeks and, and this isn't like they're not born between nine to five. No. This is any day of the week, generally when it's cold and wet and Absolutely. inconvenient and you want to be inside in bed. So on the dairy farmers, look, I, I take my hat. I mean, he's, he's an extreme, but there's a lot of people there will carve 20 or 30 cows a day. And it's a relentless job. And so I take my hat off to them and I just, I, I just wish that all the public would understand when you're having your cappuccino or your latte or whatever, just take a moment to think about the guy who hop you out of bed at four o'clock in the morning to, to put some cups on the cows for you. So, because many don't. It sounds that your role, I've never heard of anything like it. Uh, I didn't even realize that within 
you know, these commercial companies, you know, mm. on, on the, the production side of things, you know, the people that are actually taking the raw product and, and creating, you know, yeah. you know, well, not creating milk, but, you know, refining it into like your milk and your flavored milks and your ice creams and your cheeses and whatnot, that they would have somebody that would kind of work on the technical side of things with. Sure. I always thought it would come from, say, like, um, Dairy Farmers Australia. Well, not, not like the lobby groups, but the, you know, the R&D firms. Sure. Um, or the ag department or things like that. So how, I suppose, let, well, let's go back a little bit further then and talk about how you got into all of, into, that into all of that. Cause I'm sure all of that obviously <laughs> was a big part of you being qualified and able to come across to Mill and Feeds and do what you do today. You're very so. perceptive with your question because we didn't talk about this before. You, you're no. quite perceptive. Um, yeah. so my, my background, obviously I grew up on a dairy farm, passion for cows, passion for the farming. Um, I went to uni, did ag science, um, and I got a job with the ag department. And I, I spent um, three or four As years. As we all do. <laughs> you, <laughs> I, me, Mariah, everyone. That's right. I got um, three or four years. Um, I, I did three or four years up in Northern, uh, which is a wheat belt. Loved it. Learned a lot about sheep and, and, and growing grain. But I made a decision then. My boss at the time was about 70, and I made a decision to get out in 10 years. I said, like, I can't afford to be like one of those blokes that are still here in 40 years' time. And um, I was very fortunate after probably three or four years, I transferred to Bunbury. I got involved with dairy extension and look I, I learned a lot I learned a lot about nutrition about feeding about dealing with people working with farmers um, by the time I hit 30 I was the department's dairy program manager um, I was actually rather proud of that I, I think I was one of, one of the youngest program managers and I think the year after I became the officer in charge of Harvey Ag Department so it, all that was going really really well and and I'm so so fortunate that the government was so so particular about or so anal about its rules, because I'd spot, I may even still be there if it wasn't. Um, I was going for a promotion. I was at a level a, a certain level, and I was managing people two and three levels above me. And the director general of agriculture said, "Dean, you need to put in for a reclassification, and you'll definitely get it because you're doing the job." And um, anyway, I put in. I was confident. Yes, I'm going to get recognised for what I'm doing. And he actually personally rang me up. I had the director general of the ag department ring me and say, oh, Dean, I just want to tell you, your reclassification was rejected. And I said, why? Why? Like, everyone knows that I was, what I was doing. Why was it rejected? He said, oh, well, there's this rule in the public service that you've got to spend four years at the top of a level before you can go to the next level. I said, yeah, yeah, I've been there for four years. He says, no, no, you're 27 days short. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm I'm 27 days short. So I jumped in the car. I drove 160 kilometres, and I went knocking his door. And I sort of I won't swear on the on this um, this thing, but I basically made it very clear to him that I didn't agree with the public service decision. And I basically said I'm either good enough or I'm not. And fortunately for me, there is a a god up there, and he does work. Fortunately for me, I think it was within 48 hours there was an advertisement in a farmer's magazine for a job for a, for a, a milk supply manager with a company called Peters and Browns. So they, the, the ag department couldn't even say, uh, no. can you reapply in like a one month or we've just got it, we've just got to oh, hold it off a no, month. No, he did say, he did say, look, it comes around every six months. So in six, in the, in the next time when, when you reapply in six months time, you'll definitely get it. But because- can you just keep doing this job for, <laughs> for what we're paying you for now and do things that are above actually what's in your job yeah, description? It wasn't about any of that. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about the job. It was just, I'm either good enough or I'm not. You either recognize me for what I'm doing or I'm, or you don't. And I get that rules are there for a reason <laughs> and for structure and mm. to make things equitable and whatnot, but there is a point in time with bureaucrats, yep. like a time and a place where the rules are just, you have to stop and think, okay, we get why these were put in here, but 
is there some room to move? Cool. Like, and let's think about this logically. Look, I was I was thirty two at the time, and I was ropeable, but it was the best thing that ever yeah. happened to me. I, th- I often think, thank goodness for those twenty seven days. Um, because otherwise I might have still been there. I would have been happy with my promotion and going on down this line of becoming a bureaucrat within the Ag Department, which would have been terrible for me. So, um, so because of those 27 days, um, I went, just happened to have a look and there was a job with Peterson Browns and, and look, our family supplied masters, which was the opposition dairy company. And all we, all we knew was the bad stuff about Peterson Browns, but I thought, nah, I'm out of the Ag Department and I put my resume in and, um, I can still remember sitting on the on the the couch up at Graham Lake's office in the boardroom in Perth, and we had a bit of a chat. He said, "Well, the job's yours." And I thought, "Oh, wow!" So um, that's how that's how it all happened. So I, so I guess, I guess you talk about what helped me in that role within Peters and Browns. Um, I was pretty committed to from a technical knowledge on feeding animals. That, that was my passion. Um, I was pretty good with group extension with farmers. I took a lot of farmers over east on various trips and we just to try and find the latest. Um, I was passionate about technology and farmers wanting to do things better. And I guess, um, that's why I said to you previously, I could, I believe that I could, I had no chance of paying farmers a centiliter more for the milk, but I really believed I could actually make them one or two cents a litre more profit by doing things better and differently on the farm. And I guess it's a little bit what I do in, in my current role. When I started talking about wieners up in the Kimberleys, I mean, Graham's – because I said to Graham, Graham, I, I, I can't sell anything. I don't want to be a bloody salesman. And, and Graham said, well, Dean, you're the best salesman that Peters and Browns have got. And I said, but I don't sell anything in Peters and Browns. He said, yes, you do. You care for people and you've got this desire and passion to want to help them to better their businesses. He said, just take that into what you're doing with Mill and Feeds. And, and I guess the, the concept up in the Kimberleys was um, I'm not an animal liberationist type person, but I've got a real passion for animals. And I just didn't like seing these. I mean, they call them woody calves, don't they? They call them woody calves, the ones that got hairy coats, the ones that we all have seen them. You know, you sort of turn your eye to them. Oh my God, are they going to get through until the wet season? And this station I was on, but they were like every station. I mean, they had them up there and I just hated it. I just hate, I thought well, this is, why can't I take some of the stuff I know in the dairy industry <laughs> where there's no way you'd let a heifer calf not get the best of raw treatment because you want that calf to carve down as a two-year-old because she's going to probably in the first year she'll gross you three to $4,000 in milk income. So you're not just going to let her go out in the bush. Why, why couldn't I take some of that and try and help the pastoral industry? And we started off with this one station and then it sort of started to grow from there. And, yeah, so I've actually enjoyed that aspect of what I do up there too. Now, for our listeners, we've, I think we've just made a big, bit of a jump because we, we were, did, we were planning off air what we were going to kind of have a yarn about. And I think we've, we've just jumped we a few have. steps in there. So, uh, people may, we'll catch them up. But so I just want to go back that, uh, and just cover off that. So you had, you kind of started, you went from, from, uh, school to uni, yep. uni to the ag department, put in a good, good decade or more of service there. You know, that's, sure, I did. that's, more than, more than, I was actually 12 months more than I wanted to when I started, but there you go. Yeah. And, yeah. and you also mentioned earlier on and, and off air as well before that you kind of, you know, even though you had these dreams of being a ringer when you were younger, because of your father's accident, you had to essentially step up as the eldest mm. child and take on all these responsibilities of the farm. Mm. And then life just happened and you kind of. It just flowed on. It was that. It was the ag department. I missed out on my 27 days and the job came up with Peter's brands all within two months. And um, it was yeah, it ended up being a good turning point for me. Yeah, I think even though at the time things can feel really frustrating, I certainly can uh, 
can speak to this in my life that you, you know, the job doesn't turn out the way you want it to, or no. you don't get the job you've applied for, or, you know, things don't happen the way you want. And at the time you're like, Oh, this is such a, <laughs> like a kink in the hose, or mm. this is not how it was supposed to happen. But with the, with the hindsight, uh, everything kind of all generally works out in the end. You just got to keep looking forward. I think you, you've, yeah, you've got to keep looking forward. And for me, certainly some of what was at the moment, a devastating, uh, um, Outcome for me has been an absolute blessing. Um, I've got a completely different life today because of what happened. So, um, it's been good. And I think it's also, and, and you're a great example of this. It's what you do with those experiences and those opportunities. So, so yeah, you, you miss out on the promotion within the ag department. <laughs> you go to Peterson Browns, but you, you had this incredible job where you're helping people, you're learning, mm. you're traveling, you know, everything you've done from, from my knowledge is that you've made the most of every experience, sure. no matter how you got there. Sure. Um, whether or not it was planned. So, so then if I'm correct, so you work for Peterson Browns, there's a bit of a, a shift in comp- company culture and, you know, something that, um, anybody that's ever gone to like a leadership course or kind of started to learn about management is like your circle of influence. So there's, yeah, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because that, that's what came to mind before when you were saying you could no longer influence the people, the new people. Again, you're very perceptive because that, that was really um, – because, look, I I got to the point I was bashing my head against management, management that really weren't interested in farmers. And as much as I I had this sense of guilt of deserting the farm because I was their, their voice and their advocate, I had this sense, oh, hang on, if I leave, who's going to look after them? Who's going to protect the farmers? Um I, I had got to the point I realized that I had no influence over, over the management. They had, they had directions from New Zealand as to what they would and should do. Um, and, um, yeah, and basically I, I wasn't going to influence. And so I thought, well, instead of bashing my head against a brick wall, um, when Graham Late said, you want to come and work for Milne Fees? As much as I said no, um, I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I, it's actually six, 16 years ago, I reluctantly told him, I'll give you one year, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, wow, if I had have thought that, if I had a thought back then what I'd have done in those 16 years, I would have never believed it. I've been to China, Japan, New Zealand. I've been to Korea. I've been to every state of Australia with, with feed and because Graham's a very innovative guy. We've, we sell pellets all over the world now and, um, but we didn't back then. So it's been a, once again, it's been a wonderful opportunity because I gave it a try. And, and you don't know what's going to happen. And again, you've made the most of the opportunity mm. though. Uh, so when you started with Milne, so we'll, we'll kind of, we'll get sure. into like the pellets, which, which you just started to talk about before when we sure. realized that we jumped ahead. <laughs> that, that product didn't exist when you started with them, did it? Or, uh, or not for pastoral cattle? No, definitely not. I guess, I guess once again, so, so when I started with Milne's, why did I join Milne's? Um, as, as I said, I was pretty reluctant to become a salesperson, but I, Graham again, I've been to a two day workshop from a guy called Professor Ron Ling, who was at the time one of Australia's top ruminant nutritionists from, uh, New England University, and he gave a two-day workshop on some new technology on basically um, utilising fibre and and being able to get more energy out of out of fibre and grains, and to be able to do it in a safe way. And I I've been to that, and I thought, well, because I, I actually thought that a feed miller, a pellet, a, a company made pellets, no different to a dairy farm. They gave it a bit of barley and wheat, and chucked a few minerals in it, and made a made a pellet out of it instead of a loose mix. But I, but I understood the technology that Graham, he's, he actually spent eight million dollars developing it. And, and the biggest thing for me was the safety. And see, I'd been working with some dairy farmers with this, with this new product. And we, we called it Maximize Plus and we were feeding carbs, dairy carbs with this product. I knew it worked. I knew that 
that they could feed their highly valuable dairy calves. Just and dairy farmers, so as everyone knows, from day one, literally the day they're born, they receive colostrum. They get put into a shed and they get put pellets in front of them from day one. So, and it, and it's not about that they're going to grow and get fat on them. Um, it's about room and development. It's about it's about minerals. It's about calcium phosphorus ratio. It's about bone structure, um, and of course, it's about growth as well. Um, so, if dairy farmers, so I knew that's what dairy farmers do, and and I basically what I did is I took the same product and we rebranded it as Early Weaner, because people in the Kimberleys don't have calves; they have weaners. So <laughs> before we just uh, before yep. we get into that, yep. for our listeners, so we are very fortunate, but listeners all around the world uh, and yes. within industry and outside, can you let's go back to the first. Uh, Problem here. What what do you mean? Well, not problem, but the problem you were trying to solve. Are we saying it? You were so impressed by the technology that it was safe to feed to calves. Now, when you say um, this is something safe to feed to an animal, I just assume it's not poison. Well, I mean, obviously, I know okay, having you. the background, thank but you. I'm just thinking my mum would be like, "Well, as long as you're not feeding it poison, <laughs> it should be safe, right?" Okay, so, yeah. how does that sound? Okay, so work? let's let's go back to the to the the and what's a rumen? By yeah, the let's way? <laughs> let's go back to the to the book of um, ruminant nutrition 101 that we all studied at uni or whatever. And, but the very and- <laughs> very basic version that anybody. Can understand. <laughs> so, so basically, a, a cow has four stomachs, and they have what's called a rumen. And I picture a rumen as a forty-four gallon drum. It's a forty-four gallon drum filled up with all these wonderful bacteria and protozoas, and you can throw into the top of the forty-four gallon drum. You can put some grass in, you can put some hay in, you can put some grain in, you can do all sorts of wonderful things with it. And through the sides of the forty-four gallon drum, um, all these little nutrients flow into the bloodstream, and then out of that, it goes to produce milk and meat. And wool and fiber. So that's, that's crudely what a rumen it is. But this rumen is what you're looking for. Um, and then that same book 101 on, on, on ruminant nutrition, we've all learned that you've got to spend probably seven to 14 days because, because a ruminant, a cow, a sheep, they were bred to eat grass. So they're very good at converting grass or fibrous materials into meat and, and, and meat and milk and so forth. But when you feed them grains, those bacteria in their rumens, they're not adapted to grain. Okay. So, because most of the, most of the bacteria within the rumen, they were developed many, many, many years ago to be able to deal with, with fibrous materials. You go and chuck grain in there. You've got to do it normally very carefully over a two week period. Now, anyone who's feed cattle or sheep in a feedlot, they have a starter ration. Some of them have two starter rations before they go on to their finisher ration. And so the starter rations is where you start off with a lot of fibre, a little bit of grain. Add a bit more grain, less fibre. A bit more grain, less fibre, until you go on to your finisher ration. But you've got to be a sophisticated feedlotter to be able to manage that properly. So most, certainly the dairy farmers understand that you never ever start cows off in early lactation on a high level of grain. And so what would happen if they, they get did? what's, okay, they get what's called acidosis. Now, in a crude way, how can we describe that? The, blood the, poisoning? You know, the rumen bacteria, what they do is, is you have starch. Grains have a lot of starch and, and the bacteria when they've starch, they ferment it. Okay. It's a bit like you're fermenting if you're making beer or wine. They ferment it. And w- with a high level of starch, it ferments very quickly and there's a, a byproduct of that called lactic acid. And the word acid is very important. So if you're feeding wheat, which has a high level of starch and you put it into a rumen and it ferments very quickly, the pH or the acid content that's produced is very high. 
And so the pH of the rumen can fall quite quickly. Now, to put it in perspective, those who went can remember chemistry, neutral has a pH of 7. Okay, cows can sort of tolerate and function quite well with a pH of six to six and a half and seven. That's sort of heaven for them or the, the bugs which are in the rumen. When you add grain and if you don't do it carefully and you, that pH and lactic acid is produced, that pH can go down to three or four. Now, how do you put that in context? Battery acid has a pH of three or four. So, it, so it's like getting the inside of a rumen with a little bit of battery acid, and I've seen pictures of it. It literally burns the inside of the rumen. So that's what acidosis is. It, it burns the inside of the rumen and makes them very sick. So, so anyone who's good at transitioning cattle, getting them off grass and hay onto grain, they know you do that carefully over 14 days. But it's totally impractical for many people. How do you do it? Like, you have partic- to have your animals all lo- not locked up, but in Correct. a controlled environment. And and you're dead right. Now, even then, you can do that for a dairy calf that's in his own little pen. Mm. But you you picture that, and this is what I learned from going up on work on the station, working the stock camp. I mean, you might have fifteen hundred cows and calves in the yards today, and you and you're processing and you and you're drafting off all these little wieners. You might pick up twenty little wieners today that just weren't big enough to go out. They were. On 100, 100 to 120 kilos. So you put those 25 over there. But tomorrow you're going to do the same thing. And the next day you're going to do the same thing. Well, how do you treat each of those mobs of 25? How do you treat them differently and carefully introduce them over 14 days onto high ration? And the bottom line is you can't. Because at the end of the day, you've been up since four o'clock, the sun start to set and someone says, Oh shit, we better go and feed those wieners. And they get the 18 year old ringer to go and feed them something. And when you don't and- have, you know, if you're there for five days and you've got five, Groups that you know they're getting <laughs> drafted off five days apart. Correct. By day five, one of the groups will have been on the feed for mm. five days, and then another on four yep. days through. But they're all in the same pen. That's so exactly right. we don't have a million pens out there. Look, what what we learned out of the big dry that happened in the territory. I mean, because it was at a disaster. I'm talking three three years ago. It was just terrible, and we put a lot of pellets up there into the territory. And it's a long way from Perth. Um, but the, the stations here, they were getting pellets from Perth, they were getting from Queensland, they were getting from South Australia. And I guess what we learnt from our technology um, is that oh, – so I'll go back a step. The other pellets that were used and even even getting getting grains that were brought up as well, they had a lot of calves getting scouring, um, dehydration. Like diarrhea. Diarrhea. So mm-hmm. A lot of calves getting diarrhea, dehydrated and, and basically dying, whereas the ones that were on our pellets – and, and, and when I say they were getting scouring and diarrhea, what were they getting? They were getting acidosis. That the room at the pH in the room was 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 um, um, dropping. It's a bit like it's a bit I like, could like be a, going binge on lollies. Exactly, or something. you're going to get a gut ache, <laughs> and then get, you're probably going to shit yourself. <laughs> well, exactly. maybe not binging on lollies. Maybe no, you go and binge on cheese, and you're a little bit lactose intolerant. Tolerant, or something. You're going to get a gut ache, and then you're going to you shit have yourself. nailed it. And that's exactly <laughs> what these calves are doing. So, and it's actually it's it's actually um, quite quite satisfying to me that. Brunette Downs, I mean, the Aoko's down in the middle of the, of the Barkley. I mean, they're a long way from Perth, but we're now into our third year now because they did, they were the one of those stations that did try pellet. Well, not try them. They had to source them for wherever they could get them from. And, um, and they had deaths and, and now they buy, they buy early winter pellets just because from a, because it's safe. And this safety bit, you don't get lactic acid production. You don't get that rapid acidosis, um, formation and, it's from a management point of view. All you got to do is is cut the top off a bulker bag and feed it to them, or put it into a trough. There's no give them a little bit of this and a bit of that. It's just feed it to them, um, which makes it simple for for most people after a long, long day of mustering. 
So I'm going to stop now and go back a step again. So we've, we've worked out why the pellets are, are good and how the technology works. So why, so in, uh, dairy farming, people pull their calves off day one. Um, so that's obviously why there's a need to, to, to feed them in. And, and what you mentioned earlier is, um, that there were these woody calves. So I guess, so a quick 101 of up north, we have a cattle, um, they come in for their annual muster and calves, uh, uh, well, not calves, but wieners, wieners, I suppose. They, they call wieners, yeah, yes. so if they're big enough to come off mum and support themselves, they'll um, they'll come off. Um, but that is uh, generally a wide range of animals like a, of, of in mm. weight. And then if it's a calf, you know, it'll go back out to live off mum, keep getting milk, grow. But what you were saying before is that these, these woody wieners, and so sometimes wieners are um, technically, technically big enough to survive off mum, like they don't need the milk. And if they do stay on mum, they tend to, literally suck the life out of her and she may not get pregnant again. And there's a oh. great episode on that on our other uh, episode. Um, actually, no, on this episode, on this podcast earlier on, there's one called the past, uh, something to do with pregnancy. Yep. Oh, the Ariana Grande video. But some of these wieners are big enough when they're pulled off mum that they can go back out onto this, not the greatest country, but they can do all right. But there yep. are some that are big enough to come off mum, but kind of little enough that if you just put them back out in the paddock, there's not the greatest nutrition, so they're kind of. I guess it's like when you say woody, it's almost like stunted growth. Like it's, I see this in the territory a lot. Absolutely. These horses that are like fourteen hands high and look like a <laughs> yes, a, like do. an English pony, mm. and they're fully grown, and it's like they've just been literally stunted. It's okay, almost so like yeah. Let's let's go back a bit. We we talk about wieners and we talk about Cut. growth and so forth, but picture that that really what a what a wiener is is a rumen with four legs. And a head and a nose and a tail. Because it's the rumen is the a driving. Really cute head, it's, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the rumen that's the driving, uh, mechanism of that animal. And, and so a lot of what, uh, and, and look, the science has been done in, in the US many years ago that you can feed a calf, you can feed a calf just milk, milk on its own off mum. And, and basically it gets very little rumen development inside the rumen got what's called little, Papillae is what they call them, but call them, call them skin tags. Anyone who's over 45. It's like the bits on your tongue, isn't it? Yeah. The little, yeah. Or little if anyone who's over 45 and you start to get these gross happening, they're called skin tags. Well, there's lots of these little skin, skin tags or, or papillae or little, um, and so the idea is the more of them you've got, the more surface area inside the rumen. Okay. Mm. So, so you can feed them just milk on their own and you're going to get very little rumen development, very little papillae. So that's, that's the calf on mum. You can feed them. On milk and a bit of hay, and you get a slight improvement in the papillae development. So that's that's a calf on mum with access to paddock feed. Okay, so so by the time that calf gets to 130, 140 kilos, it's doing okay. The rumen's still not properly developed, but it's it's sort of yeah. doing okay. And and the work that's been done in the dairy industry, if you forget about the, the hay or or the grass, if you feed a milk, oh sorry, I should say milk with a bit of hay. But you feed them a grain-based ration. It's the starches in the grain dramatically enhances the development of these papillae. Okay, so it it rapidly enhances the development of the rumen. Now, if you've got that rumen, um, if you've got an animal that look it got to 140 kilos, and you turn it out in the paddock, yeah, it's big enough to wean. Turn it in the paddock. There's not much feed in the in the paddock. Um, it's going to really its rumen's not developed well enough to utilise properly the feed that it's got available to it. 
Whereas that same animal, if it was pulled off mum at 100 kilos and put onto a safe grain-based pellet with all the goodies put into it, its rumen is actually going to be really developed. And I've had I've had a number of pastors over the last 10 years say to me, gee, you didn't take that little bunch of, of wieners, the ones that were too small, they actually caught up to all the big ones. And it's because their rumen was properly developed. So when they did get turfed out at 140 kilos, they could actually go ahead because they can better utilise the grass that's out in the paddock. So, so and when we talk about a woody animal, that's the one that, that got to 140 kilos, big enough to wean, put it out, should be right, but its rumen is not developed. And so I think the real change we we are seeing now, and I mean this year I've supplied um, our early weaner pellets to about forty stations. And a lot of them, it's gone from from supplying a pellet because oh my god, we've got no fee, we've got to do something. To now it's becoming part of their management practice because because understand what they're growing is not an animal; they're actually growing a rumen. You've got to develop a rumen, and and so so um, we're going to see more of that concept. The pastoralists, as our beef producers down south, are going to put the effort and the few dollars into developing a room and because the because the lifetime benefits from a production point of view are definitely worth it yeah and it's certainly um the decision to do this there's there's lots of factors influencing it like where you are um what you know your condition of the cattle the season you've had but yep. not now not now we're seeing not necessarily season but when you say, you know, that they could be weaned at 130 kilos but in these situations the, the room is just not developed at that stage correct um you know, and so it's so early weaning um, is is something that is done a fair a fair bit up north. Um, but I I spent time in Central Australia and South Australia earlier this year, and they are able to with their conditions and and honestly, if you can, good on you. Yes. Um, keep their their calves on their mothers until like 240, 250 kilos, and their their mums are getting back in calf straight away. So wow. different circumstances, is, you know, and so I mean, but, so I'm I'm sure if everybody up anywhere could keep their calf on there for sure until that until 250 kilo which to me when i first saw that i was like that's not a calf that's a shetland pony i know it's magnificent if it you can is. do that in good seasons that's magnificent then that's great but, but it's just the nutrition in northern australia is it's so variable it's fickle oh and it's um, tough it's and the, and looking and it's a big animal well early weaning for me first and foremost like from what i've learned and the way we taught it is that it's first and foremost like an, an animal welfare issue for both the cow, cow and the calf well you asked me about some of those early moments I, I yeah. had. I actually went up. I, I had. I was with Mills this in 2011, and I went up to the same station in October. It was late September, October, and this particular station at the time of the live shipping ban had 2,000 head of cattle in the yards ready to go. Okay, so everything was was going absolutely fantastic. Bang! That market stopped. So straight away they stopped mustering because they couldn't muster because they had nowhere to put cattle. So the 2,000 head of cattle went out in the paddock. And what was it? it, it there was t- two or three weeks later before the market got started yeah. again. But so as soon as it got started again, forget about first round muster. We need to get those women, we need those saleable cattle back in the yard, get them on a truck and get them off to market. And so by the time I got up to the station in September, they were just finishing off the last paddock, the last paddock on the first round. And I'll never forget that day. We were, we were 60, 70 k's from the homestead uh, down at the yards. And on this one day, we had four big, beautiful big Brahmin cows. They bought them in. They were just hat racks. They were skin and bone. Great big wieners on them. No doubt about that. They're great big wieners. And all four of them went down in the race. 
and there was only one way of getting them out. And I'm not going to say what it was on the, on the podcast, yeah. but but I'll, I'll I'll always have that memory in my moment in my mind about a, a quick decision by someone who didn't understand about animal welfare issues, the impact it had. On, on no doubt tens of thousands of, of cows around northern Australia that had these thumping big wieners on them, um, because, and because they had nowhere to go. So yeah. anyway, so that, that, that was another driver for me to really start to talk about early weaning mm-hmm. and the benefits of it. But this year I visited a station up in, up in the, I'll call it the East Kimberleys and he's been a strong advocate of early weaning for many, many years. And he said, Dean, he said, it cost me to do, it cost me two million dollars to do one round this year. He said, why would I do two? And so when we say round, we mean, um, so. Mustering, yeah. Yeah. So on a, on a station, obviously you can't, you know, uh, the cattle are spread out over, you've got thousands of cattle over sometimes millions or hundreds of thousands of acres. Yeah. Um, so generally people kind of do, you know, not if they have paddocks, paddocks at a time, all the areas at a time and work their way around. And so we call that when you've done the whole property, which might take a couple of weeks or a couple of months, couple of we months call in that some cases. one yes. round or first round. And then sometimes people, because animals are breeding generally all year round, if there was a baby that was too small to take off its mum, say in March or April, yep. they'll come back and do another master later in the year because it's big enough to take off its mum. Because if you don't, and you wait until the next year, I get so big it's literally sucking the life out of its mum. So some people, I even worked on a place in the territory where they did three rounds. Wow. So they would do three laps of the station. So every cow would come through the yards. Well, not every cow, but pretty close to it, three times a year. Which yeah, is it's the biggest expense on a cattle station well, is mustering. Well, it's huge. And I, I mean, I've got to, I've actually got to think when, when I first started off wanting to get, develop the, this this product early weaner and get it happening. Um, Jed O'Brien was delivering a station, and and Jed and I worked well together. And Mick Courtney, who's now at um. Mojum, he was there as well, and but it was Keith, Keith Anderson. I went and saw Keith, and Keith had been doing it for years. Keith's only ever doing one one round at um, Jubilee Station for years because of the cost of it, pulling all everything under a, let's say from I don't know um, ninety kilos up to one hundred and twenty went off, and they went on to pellet, and he had he, he cell grazed and and gave him access to pellets. But then must be the year after I caught up with um, Hayden and Jane Sale because I think they were one of the very early adopters of very early weaner product. And, and Hayden just made it so clear to me. He was talking about, about the cost of mustering and the cost of the second round. You've got to have two and three helicopters. You've got to have a, have a crew of eight people on the ground. You've got to have a yard crew. And then you're going to get machinery damage. He said, well, if you can reduce well, sorry, if you can become so much more productive with your first round and pull as many calves off as you can and put them aside and put them onto a safe pellet that's going to allow them to grow, the whole business is better off because you haven't got that cost of doing the second round because it is substantial. Yeah, and there are, again, um, so from our perspective, not pushing it one way or the other, I, I very much, and I know Dean does as well, very much mm. understand that it is very, there's so many factors depending where you are, what your circumstances Correct. are. There's, there are, you know, and some people will um, maybe do like a little, it's, it's all different, you know, whether or not you're mustering uh, with bikes or horses or I know some people that, you know, if they do a second round, it might be in November and some people will, you know, like, and it may just be one that, paddock. Yeah, it it, it yeah, may only be a paddock yeah. or two. But, but it's, um, some people may be able to do that very safely, but in other circumstances, it's pretty dangerous to be walking cattle at that time of the true. year. Like there's, there's so many factors and we're not saying that one way is the no. right way and that everyone should do everything, but it is, there's certainly a reason why the adoption has really increased in recent years. Sure. And it's very interesting from yeah, both a nutritional perspective, uh, animal, animal welfare. welfare perspective. So I find it interesting that you, 
the the synchronicity uh, or serendipity. Sorry, I'm getting on my. I'm, I was like, I need a fancy word in yeah, here. Yeah, but good. the serendipity that you you go up to the station in your kind of like midlife crisis in your old job and you mm. fall head over heels. You finally get to do something you've always wanted to do. Sure. You fall head over heels in love with the Kimberley, and then was it a year? So how long after that first trip to the Kimberley did the did the opportunity to work with Milne come up? It was the following year, and yeah. it was and it was then I just. As I said, I had this bit of a passion for calves and animals. I mean, yeah. I like animals. And uh, I just thought, well, hang on. If I can do it with dairy calves, surely I can do something yeah. up here. And, um, and, uh, look, I've actually had, it's, I get a, a lot of satisfaction out of it because, because as I said, we do, I don't know, four or five thousand tons of this product now. Um, it's on a lot of stations. And I don't know if you can recall, um, must be three or four years ago, the Pilbara had, just a really bad dry. Mm-hmm. It was just terrible. And, and look, there, are, there's a number of Pilbara stations there that took literally calves down to they, their navels were dry, but that was about it. And they worked really, really hard to get them onto the pellet using molasses and good hay. And, and, and it probably cost them a lot of money. It probably cost them money they didn't have, um, to, to be able to do it on, and one particular station just south of Port Hedland, he actually reared 2,000 calves, <laughs> 2,000 wieners on, and they were of all stages from sort of only a couple of weeks old through to about 100 and 120 kilos. But, and there was another one just, uh, east of Port Hedland did a similar thing. And, but, but out of all that, it did rain. Like, and I, I, I find it amazing pastoralists because they know it's going to rain one day. They don't know what day it is, but they know it's going to rain one day. And, and these two pastoralists, they just kept ordering more pellets. They just kept feeding more pellets. They just kept looking after all these little calves and other people destocked. So there's two different ways of doing it, isn't there? I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but this is one way and that you, they, what, what are your they circumstances? What's your cash flow? What's your capital? Correct. What, you know, what well, can you? Well, these two here, they, they chose the option. We're going to try and keep every cow alive by taking the calf off. We want to look after cow. That was number one. And then we're going to try and keep every calf alive. And turn them into a wiener, as we call them. And, um, um, and when it rained, these guys actually had animals that grew because they kept them alive. The rumors were developed. No, they weren't big thumping big animals because there was nothing in the paddock, but at least they had, they had a thousand or two thousand head of cattle that they could work with straight away. So, yeah. and, and, and both of them, I was actually just talking to one of them two, two or three weeks ago and just saying, yeah, look, it cost us a fortune. We didn't make any money per se uh, or what, what it, what we made, it cost in, in feed. When it rained, we were straight out of the blocks. Yeah. Versus other people, then had to go back and buy cattle. And as we've all seen out of Queensland now, what happens when you finally have rain after drought? Prices go through the roof, isn't it? You got no money, but you got to go and try and find some cattle, cattle. to replace the ones you've sold. So, yeah. So that, that's just another aspect of it. Yeah, uh, putting more options on the table. I think though, what I what I particularly enjoy about your story is that you were able to kind of bring. Your two worlds together of, yeah, you know, true. you enjoy do- the stuff you enjoy doing for the dairy farmers. Hmm. Um, which in a way you've, it's been very similar what you've been doing with, with part, like with Milne, but then you've also been able to bring in this northern beef aspect yeah. as like, you no know, beef That's going a- up to a cattle station. Like it's kind of, it's kind of you, you know, you've, you've had like phase A, like ag department, learning technical, technical skills and, and yep. extension. Phase B, the, um, dairy farmers and working with them, helping them be more productive, but in private industry and, you know, having a bit more freedom. And sure. then you're basically doing the same again, but up north now, like you've kind of worked your way. It's all kind of come together. I've been, quite very, I've been very blessed. I've been very fortunate. And it's, and as you say, that bit of a passion I had as a 17 year old kid, I've been able to blend that in there as well. And I mean, I've, I've actually, I was actually thinking the other day, I've visited nearly every station from Onslow to Halls Creek 
and I mean, how many people? Most people have to wait to be a grey nomad to to even go go up there. Whereas I've actually been to them. Um, there's some wonderful, wonderful people in the states. They, they really salt of the earth people, hardworking, good good people, and um, so I've been able to sort of marry all that together and i actually see an enormous potential with cattle prices where they're at i in many ways i think i think there's a lot more scope for pastoralists i mean we have a when you have a have a dry year a really bad year and, and i guess you just accept because to me the next year is maiden heifers i mean we all look at rebreed rates of maiden heifers you'd like to get 40 50 percent if you get 60 that's really good and when you have a dry period people accept well it's a dry year we're only going to get 10 percent well, the difference between a dry year and a good year is nutrition. Okay, it's it's nutrition. And back when when feeder steers were a dollar fifty, a dollar sixty a kilo, well, it it wasn't worth even thinking about nutrition because you just accepted a ten percent rebreed rate. But when you start talking four bucks a kilo for feeder animals, there's a real scope for controlled, strategic nutrition with maiden heifers. We did a little bit of it at Liveringer. I'm talking about lick feeders, being able to maybe only feed them a kilo a day and, 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 the, and the feeders are available. The product that we do it with, ironically, is early weaner because, <laughs> I mean, early weaner is just a name, but it's a product with 22% protein, very high ME, canola meal, right ratios of um, calcium and phosphorus. That same product, I think, in dry years will change Will change breeding rates and particularly rebreed rates with maiden heifers, and and when that all starts to come together, I think we'll see the pastoral industry really start to um, move move ahead quite quickly. Now you speak with so much excitement and enthusiasm, <laughs> and you're talking about all the opportunities and the, the, that you see in the future for sure. the pastoral industry. Yet you're about to start. We'll close this chapter of your life and start a new one. So I want to want to ask you about that. You know, I was quite surprised we were on the phone the other week, and you mentioned that you're retiring next year, and I was like, "Hang on, you're not old enough to retire." Um, which you know, in in a way, I guess in my mind you're not. But you came back with a very good response, and I was like, "You know what? I'm going to make a note of that, and we're going to talk about this on the podcast." So, what did you tell me when I told you that at the age of you know you're well, sixty? Three next year. No, I was six, like, I'm like that's year. not old enough to retire. Uh, and look, I guess my, my, the, there's a couple of things in the back of my mind. I, I straight away asked, well, how old do you have to be? <laughs> I mean, how old do you have to be to retire? I mean, it's a, and, and, and for me, uh, a, a, again, a pivotal moment, a guy who I work with, um, just last year, he worked until the day before he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and then he spent his first year of retirement trying to survive and we went to his funeral. Um, so to me, you can work until you die too. And, um, but I guess, I guess I've been really blessed and I've, I've, I think I've achieved quite a bit and I've loved working with lots of, lots of people and, and I'm never not going to have an interest in the dairy industry or the cattle or parcel industry. I mean, I'm always going to, going to have that. Um, but I've also got other aspects of my life I want to go and live and do. And, um, while I'm fit and healthy, there's things I want to do. And it, it really struck me a couple of years ago, I was at Ayers Rock and, and I saw some people that were probably in their early sixties. And I hopped off the bus and they walked a hundred meters. And I thought, mate, I'm not going to get to retirement and then be, um, <laughs> be either overweight or exhausted or whatever that I can't actually go and do what I want to do. So, so, um, I look, I did make, make the decision. I want to, I want to move on. And, um, our, our company has been very, I think surprised me, very proactive. And they said 12 months in advance, go and find someone to replace you. And, um, um, I'm really, I'm really excited that we've actually got someone that's going to – I think they're going to do a better job than what I've done. 
and 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 that's I guess if you're building something up, if you can pass it on to someone who you think is going to be as good or better, I think that's um yeah, it's probably you, you can't ask for much more. So one aspect is certainly wanting to make the most of the time you've got. While, while you've got it, while you're still young and fit and healthy mm. enough to, yeah. yeah, you don't want to be 80 years old in your <laughs> caravan, you know, getting out to undo your toe ball and, break, you know, put out a hip right. or something. Yep. Uh, and you've, you've, you said, you know, given the experience of losing, um, that mm. person in your forties and then you said, uh, somebody who, yeah. who, what would she say? Sorry, it was like the day, like just after they retired or just before no, they retired? No, basically, he was always going to retire. He's in his 60s, always going to retire. Yeah, yeah. Bought, bought the caravan. Yep, got that. Yeah. Um, his wife retired. Yep, yep. We're going to go on a trip soon. We're going to, yep, we're going to do it. And then he started looking a little bit crook and so he went and got checked up and he had stage four pancreatic cancer and he passed away before just- he was 70. And I just thought, oh. And, and he was supposedly fit. Yeah. Very, very passionate about his job, very passionate about everything. Um, but he's no longer with us, and 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 the sad part about it, as much as he was a great guy, a, a really lovely man, um, everyone else moves on in their life, and you almost forget about him, yeah. <laughs> other than his wife, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so those sort of things went went through my mind as well, but, and um, certainly not not an isolated story that happened to somebody in the department. Well, that's actually happened in my time in the department to at least two, possibly three people, yeah. and you think, oh my, like, yep. yeah, you you spend all this time working so hard. You know, to earn super. And then could you imagine there was, there was one gentleman and he was an incredible person and so good at his job. Yep. And, uh, yeah, diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so I had to, you know, I remember my boss's boss saying, I'm, I'm signing these forms to get his super released early, but I don't think it, it was a matter of weeks after sure. that. So you spend your whole life, you know, yep. working for something. And so I, I totally understand that aspect of it. Talk to me about the other side of things, which I, I think is a very uh, uni- um, a great perspective um, as to also about why why now, even though you yeah, are look, still young. Yeah, look, I, I as a parent who's who's had children. I mean, my kids now are twenty seven to thirty three. But let's say when they're going through their twenties, I mean, um, there's some really good young people out there in the world. I mean, and we see them in, in life. There's some great go getters. Um, and they can do wondrous things, but often, often they just need an opportunity. And, and I didn't want to be one of these old buggers bloody hanging around, <laughs> denying a good young person an opportunity. Um, and as much as, look, it's great. You work for another year or two, put a bit more, I mean, a few more bucks in your super. But at the same time, I, I do, I do believe that the future of, of agriculture, the future of our country really is young people coming through. And, um, I'm really pleased that the person that we've got taking a place is a young lady called Jess Anthony, and Jess um, Jess is 28 or 29, and um, she's got that same passion to to help pastoralists, to help beef guys. She's worked in the dairy industry. Um, and I just I just feel by me moving on, it's actually giving her an opportunity because I know for 12 months she's been floundering, just looking for she was a bit bored doing what she's doing and looking for an opportunity. And and I'm not saying that I've left to give her that, but my decision to leave is, has actually created an opportunity for someone younger coming through. And I guess it's a bit like su- succession planning in a, in a farm business or any sort of a business. And, and here's a way of sort of allowing someone younger to come through. That, that's what's really stuck out to me is that your perspective on this saying, you know, we need to create opportunities, mm. uh, you know, for young people coming up and you can't have old people just hanging on 
to jobs for as long as they can. And, and I'm sure everybody listening, we all know somebody. And I do get it though. I was talking to, um, to somebody, uh, Tannis in episode 93, I think it is. And we did a, um, uh, we we're talking about succession planning and why there's so many issues in Australia, like within farming sure. families and farming businesses. And I, I did wonder, you know, is one of the reasons that people don't want to retire or move on is because it's almost a, a, a signal, uh, like uh, acknowledging that you're kind of at the end of your life, or you're, or oh. you're getting close. Sorry, yeah, I know, sorry no. to bring this up, but you know, and it's and it's kind of like acknowledging your mortality and that you're kind of at that point in your life. And I, I can totally understand in one way that if you're like, well, no, I'm just going to keep working until I'm like 80, because then you're still in that, you know, that working sure, phase sure. of your life. But your perspective was like, yeah. you know, when we chatted on the phone the other week, and like, no, we've just got to create opportunities for more people to come through, when you can't have people hanging on you know, forever and then, you know, no one else will get a turn. And and so when we're talking about it today, I realised I think it's an important conversation we're having because there is conversations and it's becoming more spoken about now with succession planning, so on family farms. And that's certainly, yeah, being discussed. But what you're doing is, is very similar but just in the workforce in general and whether yes. it's in agriculture or hospitality or medicine or real estate, you know, whatever industry – I don't know if that is something that is really discussed about, you know, when should people be kind of, you know, when is the right time? Oh, and, and it'll be different for everyone. I think it's – look, it's it's an individual decision. And, and look, personally, I have I have the admiration for people who want to work until they're 75 right. or 80. I have, I have the admiration for them. I, I mean, I really do. And there's some really good people who do do that and make a difference. But for me, that's not what I wanted to do. Um and, and look, as far as as far as having young people come along, I've I've just I mean, like I think I I do a reasonable job at what I do, and I've enjoyed mentoring Jess over the last six six months. But I can tell you now, she's got some ideas and some stuff that I just it was she learned stuff that I haven't learned. And I think it's 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 better to have new ideas coming in and new approaches and and new ways of doing things. I mean, just some I've been doing the our, Pricing stuff the same way for ten years, and she had a look at it. And within five minutes, she come. Oh, why don't we do this, this, and this? And I thought, oh, what a great idea! <laughs> so I think it's good to have it's good to have new blood coming in with yeah. new ideas because just be, just because we've been doing it this way for ten years doesn't mean to say it's the best way. In fact, it's probably not because technology and information is improving all the time, and you've got to you've got to want to adapt it and adopt it. Um, um, otherwise, you don't go forward. And I guess as a parent with kids, I want my kids to have opportunities. And I think all three of them have been very blessed that look opportunity, the opportunities have come along, but they've also gone and grabbed them as well. But, but at least the opportunities have come along from because, but I think there are young people that just don't get the opportunities. And, and anyway, that's call it a, a philosophical point of view or whatever, but it's just something that's part of what I do because I do, I'm a parent of young, young people. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, before we start wrapping up, so we did spend a fair bit of time talking about like your time at Mill and the technical side of things. Sure. But you've spent, you know, after this, you know, uh, incredible. I just love it. It's like the midlife, like you say, your midlife <laughs> crisis. Yeah. Uh, if if there's anything people can take away from this episode, it's literally never too late to go and work on a cattle station. No, never too late to no. go and have the no. experience. Otherwise, um, other than the days of them along, they're a bit longer when you're forty five. Uh, yeah. Twenty five. <laughs> Yep. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the body of a 45 year old. But, um, let's talk about some of your, your favorite memories or your standout memories. I guess I felt very lucky to be able to, to see a lot of Australia. I've been very lucky with my work to see a lot of Australia and to meet some nice, nice people. I guess, I guess you've got to say, um, in, 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 in traveling around, I've seen a lot of things that 
most people save up their whole life for to then buy a caravan and go and see. But I've actually been able to go and do it. And Loretta, my wife, has been able to come with me at times. And so we've been very, very lucky to to do that. It's been a wonderful opportunity for my three children. I mean, I've got Mariah. She was going through a period of life, not quite sure what to do with school. I said, well, come with me and jump on a horse for a week. And um, my wife often says, well, that was the worst thing we did because she hasn't been home since. When, <laughs> <laughs> that was She was 17, when I was 16 when I took her up there and she hasn't been home since. But um, And even even my um, eldest son, he he's, he loves the North. and So it's been it's, it's been a great opportunity for us as a family too. But Oh, look, my first experience with catching cherubim. I didn't know what Cherubim was and we had this young indigenous guy and not, he was from Luma community and he took us out one night and he showed us, he showed us how to cast the net and I could not believe these big things that were pulling out of the, it was Snake Creek on Liveringa and uh, that was, that was a wonderful experience for me. The other one was, um, we're going with the ex, um, ex policeman. He was a police sergeant from Fitzroy Crossing police station and he was um he was out at um live ring and we took us down on to to the nook and bar boundary to his secret spot for barramundi so we we slowed we we slid the tinny into the into to the river and we jumped in it and by six o'clock i think we had six barramundi and the smallest one was 80 80 centimeters like that, that was just one little memorable moment that uh definitely sticks in the back of my mind it's, and um, i've had the privilege of seeing some various there's some wonderful rock art up in the Kimberleys, there's some wonderful experiences there. Um, I actually like sitting. One of my memorable moments is just sitting behind a mob of cows on a horse. Uh, to me, gee, that's cathartic, therapeutic. I don't know how you describe it, but someone who likes horses and someone who likes cattle. Um, I guess if you did it for six months every day, you wouldn't quite view it that way. But when you're going up there for a week or two at a time, um, I've just got some wonderful memories of sitting sitting on the back of a mob of cows or a mob of wieners um, with the sun setting down and the dust blowing, uh, sort of rising. I've really, really enjoyed that. And there was another memorable moment. I'll never forget this one. was a really old cranky cow that she must have been 10 or 12 that had the horns that all came out of her head and always it came out and almost back into her head. And I went into the bush to get her and I had a stock whip with me. I went in there to get it and and I couldn't find her. I couldn't find her anywhere. I thought, well, she's got to be here somewhere because here I am on the, on my horse. And she'd lay down. And as I got close, she jumped up and she took off. And I'll never forget that moment. Because I, I didn't know that, that cows could actually lay down. To, I mean, I, I knew the dogs would do it, but I didn't think a cow would do it. So that was another, another memorable moment. And then it, then it took us about six of us on a horse to get her through a gate. It was, <laughs> it was a fascinating experience. But, um, and then as I said, just camping out at the paradise campsite on a camp stretcher with the, with the, crystal blue sky and, and watching the stars, they were right on a flight path. So you could actually lay in bed looking up and watching the jets flying to Bali. Just just those sort of memories. And I think people who who are in urban areas in Perth, you, they don't get to see the, the stars. They don't get to see the sort of the nights, the way that people are up in the Kimberleys and the Northern Territory and the Pilbara do. And so that's the moments. Um, but... But then the people, and the last memorable moment, as, as I said, I touched on it before, is just this wonderful sense of of how young people, when they get together with a common goal, because to go and work on a station, you've got to have that dream, that passion, that goal, because it's not easy. It's challenging, and so you've got to be the right kind of person to do it. But it, generally, if you've got a team of six or eight in a, in a stock camp, they've probably most of them got that same goal or dream there and it's wonderful to see what young people can achieve when they've got their dream and because uh, we often 
sort of knock the younger ones coming through. But I just, I'm in awe of them. I, I think they can do a, an amazing amount, and they do actually do do an amazing amount up there. I, I am glad that you said that because when you say, you know, when you get a group of six or eight young people or of young people together and, you know, with a common goal, the first thing that popped into my mind was <laughs> yeah. having a few beers. Having a few beers. Well, and look, I was like, there's true. a common goal, right? <laughs> but no, no the, the what you've seen and what has yeah. been like, you know, what you've demonstrated in this episode is, is the camaraderie and the teamwork and Absolutely. the hard work yeah. uh, overcoming differences to, to achieve a common goal. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the people working with the same, I mean, it, it probably is not dissimilar in a way with the you know the relationships you would have built with the dairy farmers sure. in your time with uh, Browns and Peters, but it is a different world in the pastoral industry. I mean, I, honestly, and it is one of those things. You know, once you got there, it's in your veins. It's <laughs> you can't you can't leave. You know, um, which as we've seen with you, yeah, it started off with a week, and then a week every year, and then and then you. It's I've been lucky every year for sixteen years. About at least once, and sometimes yeah. three and four times a year. So I've been lucky. And, and the people are, you know, I mean, people everywhere are wonderful, but especially in the Pilbara and Kimberley, because that's, you know, our, sure. like our stomping grounds, they're pretty bloody special people. So, you know, the friendship, you know, and obviously like these are business relationships, but sure. also you can't, you can't spend that much time with most of these people without becoming mates. Absolutely. Like and it's just inevitable. And it's, it's an interesting role you have when you go up there because there's this, there's this competitive nature between various stations and station managers and station owners, and one does it one way and one does it another way, and, and this guy reckons he's better than that one and that guy's not as good as the other one. And and I guess in the role I've got, I've, I've sort of always learnt never to judge people and, and to try and look for the good in people and because and, everyone's got some good and they all do it differently. And and what I find, um, I find right across the, the Kimberleys and the Pilbara um, – is there some really good people up there? And yes, they're different. And yes, they'll do things differently and, and so forth. But, but they are passionate about their cattle. And number one, you don't do what they do if you don't love animals. <laughs> okay. So, so as much as anyone might think, oh, hang on, these are bloody reckless pastoralists who are destroying animals. No, these guys love their animals. So that's, that's num- number one. They, they do learn to get along well with people because you can't run a cattle station on your own. Okay, and if you think you if you think you can, you're a mug and you'll never do it. So, so they actually learn to get along with people. They're very tolerant of people. Um, a lot of the pastors too, they also share this passion of encouraging and developing young people. And I've, I've been to some stations where they actually spend a lot of money training training these young people who may only be there for a year. Some may be there for two or three, but they train them in horse riding and shoeing. They put them through a low stress handling course. Um, so they actually take pride that when they leave the stations. They've actually got young people that are equipped. Um, and one of the highlights for, for me was Mariah came back from her first year up on the station and she caught up with her girlfriend and Harvey. And her girlfriend and Harvey had a flat battery. And, of course, she said, oh, I better ring, ring the ROC. And of course, Mariah said, ah, they don't want the bloody ROC. I've got a set of jumper leads in the car. And she pulls up in the main street up, you know, the bonnets, and she starts the car. Whereas whereas a year before, she would have thought, well, hang on, what am I going to do? Whereas Mariah learned how to how to jumpstart a car. She learned how to change a wheel, how to fix a tyre, how to – so I think stations take – station managers and, and, and owners, they do, they do really have a, an important role in developing young people. And – some of them hang around the pastoral industry. Some of them just learn life skills that that they're going to go and do elsewhere in life. But they they learn to be resilient because there's no such thing as can't. You can't be seventy miles from the homestead and then have something go wrong and not come up with an idea of fixing it. 
Um, whereas most of us, if we we live two k's out of town, you run you race into Bunnings to f- try and try and find the part. Whereas when you're up on the station, you don't do that. So it's those sort of skills, and I, I think I think station managers should be really proud, and station owners should be proud of the, what they do do with developing young people. So as you prepare for this next chapter in life, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and and come closer to closing the Milne chapter, looking back on your story so far. What would you say is the major takeaway lesson or lessons that you've learnt? Oh, that's an interesting question. We're trying to wrap up 40 years of work, isn't it? <laughs> 41, 60 years of life. <laughs> into, so. in, into one question. I guess, I guess I've learnt, and Graham Lake taught me about this in business when I first joined Peters and Browns 27 years ago. He, he taught me that the business is not about products. Business is, business is about people. It's about relationships with people and and unless you can put yourself in the shoes of the person you're working for, you're not going to be able to help them. And so so business is about relationships and and I've tried to I've I can honestly put my hand on my heart and so I've never flogged a pellet. I was paranoid about going flogging pellets and I've never done it. I've gone and looked I've gone and looked how can I actually help the client to improve what they're doing. And I'm really proud of what I'm doing with, with one one station, the Kimberleys, because they've got very high valued animals. And we're going to take a dairy farm approach to managing their young calves. And so that's, again, it's just one example of trying to find a, trying to see the, a potential problem they've got and come up with a solution. So I've learned that business is about relationships, but really life is about relationships and never ever lose sight of that. That there's no point saying, oh, boy, geez, I bloody retired worth 10 million bucks or whatever the number may be. And you're the only one sitting at the table. I mean, I mean, why, why do that? Yeah, I think, I think you've got to, you've got to get along with people. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't worry about if someone upsets you a little bit. Just let things go through, through to the keeper unless they're a major thing. Um, and, and get along with people because most people are good. Most people are good. Yes, they have stressful moments. They might fly off the handle and say something they, they probably shouldn't, shouldn't have done or, but just, just accept that where they're at at that time. Um, and understand most pe- people are good. Life's about relationship. Business is about, uh, about relationships. And when you get to to the end, well, just make sure that you've got pe- people around to to be able to share it with. So that's a very philosophical site out of forty years. But the first thing I'm going to finish on. People say, "What are you going to do when you retire?" The first thing I'm going to do. I've just only last week we've got a group of six riders, and we're going to hop on a bike in in Derby next year. We're doing the Gib River Challenge, so that's the first thing I'm doing in my retirement. We're going to ride a push bike from um, Derby to El Cuestro. So I'm back up in the Kimberleys again. See, <laughs> you can't out. Like I said, once it gets in your veins, you cannot leave. We're back up in the Kimberleys. There will be some way. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dean. Uh, for sharing your story, I think there will be something that everyone can take away. Look, I hope so. And look, as I said, when you rang me up and said you wanted to do this, I thought, well, why me? Um, why me? But why look, not you? I just, what I a- just do hope that yeah, someone's benefited from it for sure. And I, I, I've been very blessed. I've been very blessed to work in the agricultural industry with some really nice people. And um, yeah, I just can't can't help that I have been blessed. Even even the amount of times you've said that in this podcast episode, though, <laughs> okay. shows your perspective on these things. So again, sure. it's it's how you've it's the lens through which you have chosen to look at all these experiences. True. You know, like you said, there's been some things that you didn't want to happen or didn't plan that way or whatever. But this is the way you look back on it. This is the lens you mm-hmm. use. So that's something to take away as well. And I will just um, 
just finish up on that quote that you told me earlier from when you uh, just just so we don't because I've got that written down. I thought it was quite important. You were in a mentoring program. When yeah, you look, when I was 21, I, the Ag Department back in those days had a mentoring program and I'll never forget a guy called Kevin Goss was his name. He was my mentor and he came up and said, young Dean, because I was all enthusiastic, came out of uni. I had a I had an honours degree in agricultural science and there's nothing I didn't know I was going to be able to help um, save, save the agricultural world. And he stopped me with my enthusiasm for a moment. He said, look, he said, Dean, Dean, just understand, people don't care what you know unless they know that you care. I said, Kevin, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? He said, well, unless you can actually put yourself in their shoes and get to know a little bit about their life and what are their drivers and things that they're facing on the farm and whatever, they don't care what you know. And I've always remembered that. It's been a real um, poignant point, um, part of my life. And if someone else can, can get something from that, just always remember, people don't care what you know and, unless they know that you care. And so hopefully that helps someone because it certainly helped me. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.